the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. Open lines Friday, 60250. Let me me do it in the right cadence. 602-508-0960. Do you have that clip on how to do the wrong cadence? 602-508-0960. I think we could all use a laugh, Bill, if you want to find it. Um, Jerry called back. Steve called back. We're talking to Mike and Maricopa. I postulated a question. I wonder if sh- if short shrift is related to the word shrove, as in Shrove Tuesday. Of course it is. Of course it is. It all has to do with confession. So you uh, you are shriven after you make your Shrove Tuesday confession, Mike, and everyone else. And Say- hopefully you can give short shrift, meaning only short confessions. Yeah, Did you know all that? Did times. you know that's where Shrove Tuesday came from? No, I haven't. I was not aware of that. By the time this show is over, not today, but, you know, someday, we'll have learned everything. It'll be like we're done with the Internet, you know? We finished surfing the Internet. The whole thing. Yeah, the the whole thing, yeah. We will know everything by the time this show signs off the air. All right. Um, For... I did it. Yeah, no, there's no there's no good transition here. Mike in Maricopa is very learned about the border and cartels. Mike, you were talking to us about the cartels and the border problem. Let me throw it back to you now. Go ahead, sir. Okay, very good. You know, I think it was Benjamin Franklin. I've heard it attributed to him. I was not there. But he was talking about the American Revolution, and it said something of about we anybody can sit here and complain about the problem. We're looking for people with a solution. Okay. And so I've heard you in the last week or so asking a lot of your guests of uh, what would be their idea. And when we left off, uh, I had said that number one is to identify the cartels as insurgents. Sure. And not not all of them, but the big ones, once again, like the Sinaloa. Sinaloa we start with. Yeah, you bet. Yes, yes. Okay. Uh, number two is to uh, the target is the leadership. Now, sometimes they've tried that down in Mexico. They called it the kingpin strategy, and that causes a power vacuum and leads to this extreme violence. But uh, that's pretty much what needs to be done. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other thing, and it's the utilization of an irregular security force and a counterinsurgency operation. Now, uh, the we could call it a neighborhood block watch. Uh, because, you know, number one is the people have a vested interest in their community. They know the area better, the terrain, we'll say. Uh, they know who comes and goes, their neighbors. They identify the vehicles, things like that. Now, uh, I do have an issue with the very term uh, counterinsurgency because it implies that you're waiting for the insurgents to act before you react. And what really needs to be done, we've all heard the term Oh, what is that? Uh, proactive and mm-hmm. reactive. Sure. And in insurgency, you need to be proactive mm-hmm. and not reactive. Right. 
the next thing is number four. Point number four is the need, media needs to report on this criminal activity. You know, how we've heard in the last year of about COVID and the infections and the deaths. And, you know, if the media would start talking about these things of how many were this and how many are that, then the people would become better informed. And one of the other big things, especially in an insurgency, is to, number five, is to separate and safeguard the population from the insurgents. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some other ones is that the government must have a clear political aim, and that is to establish and maintain a free, independent, and united country, which is politically and economically stable and viable. Mm -hmm. The next one is the government must function in accordance with the law. Mm -hmm. The government must have an overall plan. Mm -hmm. The government must give priority to defeating the political subversion Mm -hmm. and not the Mm guerrillas. So when they go over here and talk about, oh, well, we picked up these people hiking across the desert with backpacks. Yeah, that ain't going to do it. That's that's a strategy of what I call too late. Yes, yes. Well, oftentimes... Uh, you may recall the anyway. whole notion of fighting them over there so we don't have to fight them over here. Well, we're fighting them over here. That, that is true, but we also have to understand that even the military took them one year in Iraq to even come to the realization, admit that they were fighting an insurgency yes, sir. that started to arise yes, with debathification right. and stuff like that. Right. Right. And the other one, in the guerrilla phase, that would be the second phase of the insurgency, the government must secure its base areas first. So mm-hmm. uh, those are some of the the things. Um, but what I hear, in the, and it appears to me that the media is kind of uh, leading the narrative here is here on the southwest border. Uh, I hear this arguing back and forth, especially in the press conference was with Chin uh, Saki, that we're wasting time arguing. Well, it's a crisis. Yeah, right. No, it's a right. challenge. Right. And, and it, it, the media maybe needs to get out ahead of it and say what this is. It's actually an invasion and it's a war. And as an example of... You know, we hear all these, oh, all the children and everything, but what is the big percentage is about, what, 75% are males the age of 15 to 19-year-olds? Right. Right. That sounds kind of like a military right. age of right. child warriors. Right. And, you know, and also now what we've got is the media is propagandizing because we constantly hear the children, the children, the children, and that goes to tug on the heartstrings of what's going on. Um, I'd like to kind of be real quick and transition to one other observation I have. Okay. But uh, a suggestion for a song, um, you've heard of Grand Funk Railroad. Yes, I have. Uh, They have a song called Don't Let Them Take Your Gun. Oh, interesting. That might be the most conservative song out there. There you go. Uh, Shift gears real quick here. Let's go to China. In post-desert storm, somewhere about 1998-ish, two Chinese Air Force colonels wrote a book called Unlimited Warfare. And and because they realized at that time, by observing what the United States did in Iraq in desert storm, that there was no way that the Chinese could defeat the United States militarily, so they decided to go to this 
unlimited warfare aspect, and it has to do with cyber, political, economical, psychological. And it's usually uh, by, okay, we've all heard the term fourth-generation warfare, like as they refer to as asymmetrical, uh, but we could usually tell that maybe these people were proxies, like, oh, you know, during the Vietnam War, where it was pretty obvious that the, the North Vietnamese were being supplied by China and Russia, or in Korea, where they were being supplied. But in this fifth-generation warfare, that it's it's not overt, it's more covert as to where it's hard to tell where the cyber attack comes from. And uh, the as a prime example of this biological attack by the uh, supposed of the Wuhan virus, but it is actually a psychological tactic tied into the unlimited warfare. And uh, as an example on this uh, unlimited warfare, look at the Department of Justice's website on what they, all these people that have been arrested with what they refer to as the Chinese's Thousand Talents program, where oh, they're right, uh, right, right, right. Mike, do you get invited to a lot of dinner parties? No. You are fascinating. You are endlessly fascinating. I'm surprised you don't get a lot invited to a lot of dinner parties. Well, no, you're no, a wealth. Well. You're a wealth of knowledge. I, I well, love your I, program on 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 the border. That's my pro. Your program is now mine. I'm adopting it. By the way, you, you made a really interesting point along the way. I think it was your point four about if the media would highlight it. When you think about what they can do when they want to highlight something, the virus, the Wuhan virus, the Chinese virus, the coronavirus, whatever you want to call it. When they decide to highlight something, they know how to make it a story which is why I've always call it, called it a very privileged virus or a very privileged ailment when you think of other ailments in the society we hear nothing along the lines of, like we did the Wuhan virus, other crises in America, whether it's the opioid crisis, the drug crisis generally, substance abuse if you prefer it that way, um, there, any number of crises, obesity. I mean, there are other things we have that prob that are problematic to this country, and in some cases, much more so, that don't get nearly the attention that the Wuhan virus did. And it just shows you, if the media wants to make something a story, they can. I'll say something more about that when we come back, thanks to Thomas Jefferson. I'm Seth Liebson, and we will be right back. 602-508-0960. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Open line Friday, 602-508-0960. The Biden administration is chafing over um, its meeting today with a delegation from uh, China because after we lectured them in public on their human rights, uh, they, um, they lectured us back. Uh, they lectured us back saying, quote, um, the United States needs to do better on its human rights. The Black Lives Matter movement did not just emerge over the past four years. The slaughter of African-Americans has always been a problem. Well, <clears throat> do you blame them for saying the kind of thing that the left has been 
feeding as a narrative against this country for how many years now? Um, Vice President Kamala Harris today, today in introducing Joe Biden at a speech, she said, this is your vice president. She said, racism is real in America and it has always been. Xenophobia, xenophobia is real in America and ho- always has been. Sexism, too. And then, just so no one mistook the, um, mistook the innuendo, she says, quote, For the last year, we've had people in positions of incredible power scapegoating Asian Americans. People with the biggest pulpits spreading this kind of hate, close quote. Is she talking about Louis Farrakhan? I bet she's not. By the way, can anyone find me, please, one example of Donald Trump scapegoating Asian Americans? Asian Americans. That's what she said. Asian Americans. Can anyone find me that quote? Can anyone show me the evidence? Asian-Americans? So why are we blaming China for saying the very kinds of things that Kamala Harris said on the same day about this country? Stop running down this country and maybe others will too. Maybe. Or at least they'll know we're serious about standing up for this country. I should think. I would think. I would hope. I should hope. Thomas Jefferson, in my monologue, I quoted about how the media should be divided. It was it's a great it's a great letter he wrote. He said, perhaps he wrote in uh, he wrote, perhaps an editor might begin a reformation of his newspaper in such a way as this. Divide his paper into four chapters. The first truths, the second probabilities, the third possibilities and the fourth lies. The first chapter, Truth, would be very short, as it would contain little more than authentic papers and information from such sources as the editor would be willing to risk his own reputation for their truth. The second would contain what, from a mature consideration of all circumstances, his judgment should conclude to be probably true. This, however, should rather contain too little than too much. The third, possibilities, and fourth, lies, should be professedly for those readers who would rather have lies for their money than the blank paper they would occupy. You know what the most interesting part about this whole thing for me is, this whole letter line of, of, of uh, Thomas Jefferson's? The editor would be willing to risk his own reputation for the truth of what he publishes. Well, maybe after uh, the dissent Lawrence Silberman uh, delivered in um, – in Washington D.C. today, uh, we will um, we'll, we'll start beginning to get more truth. Maybe it's going to take a majority to adopt Judge Silberman's dissent, but it's a beautiful dissent. If you missed it, you can go back and listen to my monologue uh, via YouTuber at nine sixty thepatriot dot com. Listener Charles writes: Just how does the Democratic Party represent the people? How? Where? Consider this: They elected a man to run against the current president. Donald Trump, because they thought he had the best chance to beat him. He ran as a moderate, even though he really wasn't. He won by possible shenanigans, and we're not even allowed to talk about it. 
He selected a woman to be vice president simply because she was a woman, though she finished at the bottom of her primary race, not even making it to Iowa. When they did win this questionable election, they passed measures not through actual legislation with debate, discussion, and congressional approval, decisions that affect the life, liberty, and health and careers of regular Americans, no input from the voters or their political representatives, all at the stroke of a pen through executive order. Now we have a very real possibility that Biden may not be around for the full term. So if, vice, if, the, if his vice president moves up, she will be appointing a vice president, and then both positions will be filled by unelected people. Consider that. Well, she was elected vice president, but consider that. We already see radical agendas and radical bills being forced through with no input from the voters of the Republicans. Just how does the Democratic Party represent the people? Great point, Charles. On this point, our friends at Issues and Insights write, some believe that Woodrow Wilson's wife, Edith, ran the federal executive branch after the president had a stroke in October 1919. Even the Obama White House said she functionally was in charge of the administration for the remainder of Wilson's second term. At least Wilson started his presidency, however, in a sentient state. Not sure the same can be said of Joe Biden. It's clear that the 46th president of the United States is impaired. He has yet to face the media, waiting longer to hold his first press conference than any president the last 100 years. Biden's team has finally scheduled a news conference, announcing Tuesday he'd be up for it on March 25th. Why the long run-up? Will it take his handlers that long to ensure that he doesn't have a blowout while talking to the press? There's a transparency problem, as, trust, as Trump's press secretary, Kayleigh McEnany, has pointed out. Biden aides are doing nothing to inspire the country's confidence in the man. But then again, there's not much to be confident about. Some recent evidence of note. Bubble Biden clearly not up for tough questions with a job, says New York Post headline of Michael Goodwin's March 16th column. Goodwin reminds readers that after Biden's lone interview since taking office, the White House was forced to clean up his comments about Donald Trump receiving intelligence briefings, the $15 minimum wage, and Iran's nuclear program. In late February, Biden famously rambled on about losing track of his thoughts and wondering where he was. On Tuesday, he claimed he'd arranged an $800 billion aid package for Central American countries in 2014. And on Thursday, Biden referred to President Harris. Earlier this month, the bumbling president called Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin the guy who runs that outfit over there. Biden ended his session at the House Democrats 2021 Issues Conference saying, quote, I'm happy to take questions if that's what you want me to do at which point he was given the modern-day version of the vaudeville hook to obviously prevent him from making yet another spectacle of himself. Former White House stenographer Mike McCormick, who spent six years as Biden's side, as he met world leaders, delivered speeches, and interacted with members of the news media, told one-time Trump aide Steve Bannon in January that he estimated the president's cognitive abilities have fallen by half in recent years. We had Mike on the show yesterday. There's a lot wrong right now, a lot. And this is all before stumbling upwards on the stairs three times today. Six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. Open lines Friday. Anything you want.
Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 602-508-0960. This is your open line Fridays, anything you want. Third hour, 5 p.m. We'll be joined in studio by the one, the only, the great Scott Pressler, known as the Persistence Hutch in Phoenix. Hello, Hutch. Welcome. Hi, Seth. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing just hey, fine, um, sir. I hope you are as also. If that was any better, I'd have to be two people. Tell me about the name Hutch. Uh, short for Hutchings. Perfect. I've had it all my life. My dad's had it. My brothers have it. Oh, so is it a last name? Yeah. How does your dad distinguish between calling you and your brothers well, when you were kids? Or did name. or did he just do an all call? That's pretty much it. Yeah. Uh, especially when they, my grandmother, she used to get so frustrated. And she, oh. Because my our my two older brothers were Tim, Tony, and Todd. Uh-huh. And so you can imagine. I can imagine. We're yeah. only a year apart. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was free-for-all. Hey, uh, I've been reading a few articles about how these colleges, and I think Harvard was one of them, uh, Columbia was another, I believe. Columbia. How they're Col- segregated. Yeah, Columbia's the big one. Six different graduation yeah. ceremonies. Exactly. And they had one for, like, Lower class or poor people. Yeah, lower income people. Seriously? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so let's let's not um, let's not make them feel different or other, but let's have their own graduation ceremony. They have special Isn't events this for what black Brown as, versus the board of education was about. Yeah, I yeah uh, in public education anyway. But I I have it as they have a ceremony for black graduation ceremony for blacks, LGBTQs, natives, mm-hmm. what they're calling Latinx, low income. And Asian graduates. Um, it's amazing who doesn't get the cut here. Does that automatically put whites in a separate bite? Yeah, of course it does. Uh, at Jews, uh, uh, one might yeah. one might say. I don't know why Catholics don't. I mean, uh, you can just play this game all day long. Candace Owens, the great Candace Owens, tweeted, "Congratulations are in order for liberals in Columbia University for successfully bringing segregation back." by simply calling it diversity inclusion. Just one question. Which ceremony do biracial children attend? You know why that's a pregnant question? It's a pregnant question because the leftist race mongers don't believe in biracialism, as you saw from the attacks on um, the Supreme Court justice when she was a nominee Right, Amy Coney Barrett for adopting the children that she did from Haiti, and she was blasted for engaging in cultural appropriation. They don't even believe in it. They just don't believe in biracialism. They don't believe in desegregation. They believe race is the most important thing. I had a heartbreaking call, Hutch. Um, I, I, I know that most of the time, uh, especially for black and whites anyway, for some reason... It seems like they like like Obama. I mean, perfect example. They always referred to Obama as the first black president. Well, is he? Yes, as they define it. Sure, I have no problem with that. Certainly, the first African American president. If you want to be exquisitely accurate, right? Well, I don't know. Was the uh, uh, African American connotates that he was born in Africa? I don't know. I think I, 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 I hate these labels like this. No, you know? I do too. I do too. But you know, it becomes a very curious question once you get to the reparations debate. 
because, you know, if his father's side was engaged in the slave trade or his mom's ancestry was in, engaged in it, uh, in, in, in the slave practice, then does, as Larry Elder say, says, does he write a check or get a check? And we can play this game forever and ever, and we can resegregate society forever and ever. I had a heartbreaking call from a friend today um, and asked for my advice on a story about what's now just seemingly coin of the realm racism that was directed at him, and he didn't know how to handle it. Um, I wouldn't have either, to be fair, and I'll tell you about it when we come back. It's really a very sad sign of the times. But I think we're going to have to be preparing ourselves for a lot more of it. And we'll do that when we come back. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. Scott Pressler, The Persistence, will be in the house with us at the top of the next hour. Happy to take your calls with him as well. Um, A friend of mine called me this morning and asked me what he should have or could have done differently in a weird situation that I think we're going to have to get much more used to, sadly. He was on a um, Zoom or conference call with several colleagues, work colleagues, who were all geographically in different places. And I think none of them have actually met each other in person. I think. I think. doesn't matter. matters a little. doesn't matter a lot. And as a team-building exercise, before the call gets to the merits, they all go around and say something kind or complimentary about one of the other colleagues. (laughs) already a minefield. I guess gone are the days where you just go to work on behalf of the client. But in any event, as a team-building exercise, and, you know, maybe in these days of loneliness and who knows what, it's not the worst, I don't know. Anyway, they go around, and one of the colleagues happens to be African-American. And not over the age of 40 and not under the age of 20. And he says a kind word about my friend. who's a Jewish American, white. And you know what he says? I want to compliment X for doing so well with his privilege. I want to compliment X for doing so well with his privilege. Doesn't know him that well. No one said anything, and my friend was really taken aback. First time. He said, you know, you have these things in life where you wonder if you could have said something or should have said something differently. I said, probably not in this case. There's probably no good thing to say. He said, you know what I wanted to say? I said, what? said, I wanted to say, if you want to compare privileges, I bet we can. My grandfather died in Auschwitz. You don't know much about me. 
my aunt said she had t- tattoos on their arms their whole lives that they didn't put there. But in talking with my friend, I said a few things. I said, um, I said, uh, I think we're going to have to get used to a lot more of this. I mentioned that he's under 40 because I think people under 40 feel that that's okay now to talk that way, to just assume characteristics of people based on their race because they've been drenched and soaked in the appropriateness of it, if not the moral mandate of doing so, quite frankly. Look at what Columbia University is doing after all. I said, I don't think you can say anything. I mean, I don't know how that ends well. I don't know how that ends well, given today's culture. So you have at once a racial assault and insult. You are being judged for your race and by your race by someone in public or at least not in private. And you have to take it. You have to take it. Because anyone who has seen or paying any attention to what goes on at meetings where someone pushes back on this issue will see that they become targets and they become the racist. The respondent becomes the racist for denying their white privilege or their attributes being based on a Caucasian race of sorts. And it's really sad and it's really unfortunate. And I think this is our future. I think this is our future with too many under the age of 40 thinking of it that way, thinking of us that way. And the sad parts of this, I think it's fair to say include this. The only person in between those two who was thinking race was the one who pointed out that my friend had white privilege. I know my friend. He's never thought in racial terms at any point in his life, nor would he have here. He no longer would have thought in racial terms than I would have thought of the Swedish Philharmonic on any given day, to borrow from Dennis Prager. In fact, to continue the borrowing, I would have thought more of the Swedish Philharmonic than I would have about, as my friend would have, about this man's race. So we've taken a generation of Americans who were brought up not to think in racial categorizations, not to think in racial categories, not to think in racial terms, and succeeded at that. Only to now create a new America where those from a numerically minority race in this country bring it back, bring it back, resegregate our society in the name of wokeness. I'll say it again. I've done it before. I'll do it again. The term woke, 
I'm surprised more people don't ask this question. Where did the term woke come from? So far as I know, I'm the only radio host that has ever delved into the origins of it. But it comes from a 1962 op-ed in the New York Times by one African-American writer named William Melvin Kelly. In an op-ed that was titled, No Mickey Mouse Can Be Expected to Follow Today's Negro Idiom Without a Hip Assist. If you're woke, you dig it. First time the word woke was used so far as anyone can tell. And what he was writing about were ads in the New York subway system that were targeting the African-American community. Targeting is the wrong word. Aimed at. Aimed at. Using, you know, the kinds of language that people would associate with the 1960s in that community. And he said, we don't want this. He wrote, the African-American wants to be completely, he said, the black man, wants to be completely accepted in American life. His dreams are of living in a good neighborhood, driving a nice car, sending his children to a good school, making a decent living, and he realizes that anything which sets him apart will keep him apart. Close quote. Do the woke mongers know this? Do the woke mongers know that the originator of the term woke was an integrationist seeking to find no more separation between the races, mainstreaming into American life, desegregation? The answer is they don't. My producer, Bill, thought this song was too racy. Might I remind him that in the 1980s, ABC networks used it as a promo song for their lineup? I don't know, but you said it, not me. Let's go to Jim in Phoenix for a little sanity. Hi, Jim. Hey, Seth. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm good. Hey, I don't know if I misunderstood or not, but I heard you make a comment a minute ago about your friend that had a racial uh, comment made, you said, we just got to take it. I mean, I don't know if you meant it that way, but I think that's probably one of the biggest problems this country's having is we're all expected to take it. You know, I was born white, and I certainly couldn't tell my mom, hey, change me, because I don't want to have problems when I get older. You know, I'm proud of who I am, whether I'm white or black. I mean, I'm white, and I'm proud of it. That's my opinion, and if somebody let me let me try it with you this comment. way, Jim, because I my sentiment sure. is my my heartfelt sentiments are with you. But let me let me try and ask you this piece of advice. You have a small team working on a project together of six people that don't know each other well and haven't met physically, and you're on a call, and this happens. Would you not? Would you? Would you say this is the time to push back and fight back on it? I think at any time in this environment and this culture that we're in, I mean, you have to risk to, to stand up for what is right and what's wrong. And this whole woke nonsense is just. I guess know, part of me, I, I, I'm sympathetic strange. to your point of view. I guess part of me was thinking in the back of my head something Ann Landers once said. Do you remember that name, Ann Landers? When someone criticizes you unfairly, live your life so that no one will believe them. And I suppose in the back of my head I was thinking, you know, you're going to have a working relationship with this person for some time or not. 
you can quit the job. You're all consultants. Right. You know, maybe over time you live your life the way you have and in, do, in so doing you educate this person over time. Because I got to tell you, I could see it going wrong a million different ways on a Zoom call spur of the moment. Well, sure, and I understand all that. It's just, I think I'm just to the point of... You and I are not far apart. I just, I I was thinking more about the three-part test I like to run through in these moments. Does something need to be said now? Well, it starts, does something need to be said? Does something need to be said now, and does it need to be said by me? Something needs to be said. That's what I do every day. Something need to be said at that moment? Not so sure. Does it need to be said by him? Not so sure. It's a tough conundrum because we have switched the burden where the non-racist is going to be blamed in almost every situation like that. I'm open to discussing it more. I really am. Scott Pressler in the house. We'll be right back.